Welcome to episode 432 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the BaseballReference.com Play Index. I am Ben Lindbergh. Sam Miller still on vacation back this week, but not yet. So I am joined, as I was last week, by Dan Brooks of BrooksBaseball.net and Baseball Prospectus. Hello, Dan. God, I just called you Sam. What is wrong with me? Hey, Ben, what's going on? <laughs> Good start. Um, Good, good job. <laughs> By the way, if uh, if anyone missed Friday's episode because it wasn't up in time for your commute, like the podcast normally is, you should check that out. It was a it was a fun one and an educational one. I think for me at least, I talked about the rising strikeout rate in baseball with a, a bunch of people, more guests than we have ever had on this show at one time. Harry Pavlidis and Rob Nyer and Brian Bannister and Alan Nathan and we discussed and debated why strikeouts are up so much and and what should be done about it. So that was fun. Check it out if you haven't. So today we are just going to talk about a, a bunch of stuff that happened this weekend. We don't really have one topic. We have a few, although I suppose there is a theme to a few of the things that, that we are going to talk about. This was the weekend of unwritten rules, so we will talk about all the unwritten rules controversies because we we have a lot to add from our perspective as as former high level professional baseball players and there was also some some news that we can discuss i guess we can we can just get the get the quick actual news items out of the way so the the tigers released alex gonzalez which was not really a a shock to anyone i don't think the shock was probably that Alex Gonzalez was being counted on to play shortstop, to start at shortstop for a contending team in 2014 at age 37. And this is, I guess, the second straight season that Alex Gonzalez has been asked to do something that he really can't do. Last year, he was uh, asked to be the Brewers starting first baseman on opening day. That didn't last very long, and this didn't last very long either. The curious thing about it, I suppose, is that you know, the, the Doug Fister trade got so much flack and Dave Dombrowski got so much flack and the defense was often that Dave Dombrowski has this great track record for trades, which is absolutely the case. But this trade was sort of an offshoot of the Doug Fister trade because one of the, the players who was traded in the Fister trade, who Detroit got back for Fister, Steve Lombardozzi, was traded to the Orioles for Alex Gonzalez, which seemed like sort of an overpay at the time. Not that Lombardozzi is, is anything special, but, you know, a, a decent utility guy um, and seemed like someone they wanted over the winter. And, and you know, when they lost Iglesias, they sort of made the desperation move for Gonzalez. But it was kind of curious to think that, you know, Gonzalez clearly not much of a hitter anymore. And to expect him to play shortstop at a high level seemed like a lot to ask, but you figure, go back to the Dombrowski trade track record again and how he's always seeming to make these moves that work out. And so now they have already thrown in the the flag on this one and released Gonzalez and called up Danny Worth. And and they basically 
more or less admitted that it was kind of a, a scouting mistake, you know, without using those words. But they basically said that they hoped that Gonzalez could could play shortstop at a high level, and and he just wasn't. Uh, he he wasn't giving them the range that they thought they would get from him. So I, I don't know whether you know they saw him for a few games in spring training and thought he looked good and he turned out to not be so good. Um, but now they're in the situation where they're going with Andrew Romine and Danny Worth, and I'm still sort of wondering, why not Stephen Drew? Do you have any theories about why not Stephen Drew? Um, no. <laughs> it's, it's curious. I mean, <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. I mean, you know, this why not Stephen Drew has made little sense from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and... So why not Stephen Drew now? I guess maybe it's because um, there's like some shame involved in signing Stephen Drew now if you didn't sign him to begin with. And right. now you're giving up a draft pick to get even less. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you could just wait. And I, I don't really understand it. I, I mean, the qualifying offer system doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever, but right. it really doesn't make any sense to me in light of why not sign the guy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think really the whole Alex Gonzalez thing is weird, not because they were asking him to be a major league shortstop, but just because of the whole story around it, you know, like, I mean, if Alex Gonzalez has been sitting on the couch at home or like mowing his lawn or like uh, teaching, you know, like, you know, some eighth grade classroom or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they just needed a guy because the glaciers went down and they didn't feel, you know, happy with any of their other options, and right. so they called him up, and they, <laughs> they were needed like, the guy so badly hey. that they apparently asked Omar Vizquel if he wanted to be that guy, <laughs> and he well, didn't. Like, so. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> if they just needed a guy, you know, and he was just a guy, then they could go get a guy, and you know, like he had done this before. You know, it wasn't like crazy. It wouldn't be like, um, you know, like calling up Barry Bonds and being like, "Hey, you want to be our shortstop?" Right. You know, I mean, like this, this was a guy who could be a shortstop. I mean, he just actually couldn't be a shortstop, and so. Um, the weird thing is that they like spent assets to acquire him after acquiring those assets in a seemingly undervalued, but you were hoping maybe like it was a really good deal for them because of the whole trade thing. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, it, the whole situation is just weird, but why not Stephen Drew? I have no idea. I mean, I, um, uh, did he like personally insult some member of the family did he he, you know did he do something wrong right i mean the only thing i can think is that they are just getting kind of worried about things coming to a spectacularly terrible end all of a sudden once this current core gets old uh and maybe things go downhill fast and they're just really sensitive about giving up a draft pick but I, I, you know, it seems like a team that is really built to win now, and Drew would give them a, a better shot at that. Either that, or it's, you know, they just think they can get through the regular season without him, which could could be the case. They are well. In the first weird place. thing about it all is, is that you know, you just signed Miguel Cabrera to a ten-year deal, um, and right, that's what it was. Was it ten years? Was it eight years? Ten years? It was some, yeah. you know, it's some really long deal, right? And you know, so. It, it, and, and, you know, everybody is pretty much in agreement that the first years of those contracts might be worth it, but the, the last years are going to be terrible. And, you know, it, it's one of those things where it's like if you are so future conscious 
in some areas. Like you don't want to give up a draft pick to go sign a clearly better player than you can get internally. Then why are you so not future conscious in other areas of the organization? That's sort of confusing. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll see what happens with Drew. I'm curious to see whether you know he works out some sort of agreement. He and Boris work out something with some team over the next couple months. Who knows? Maybe they already have some sort of provisional agreement somewhere. And the day after the draft, we see him sign somewhere. Is that sort of what you're expecting? I mean, it it, it seems almost inconceivable that he could sit out the entire season. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's really dumb that there are rules that prevent people from playing at no, you know, that, that, um, yeah, this is a really dumb rule. It should be changed quicker than the transfer rule. Like <laughs> if I had a list of rules that I would want changed, it would be like the qualifying offer rule. And then I would go for the transfer rule, but the transfer rule is going to get changed first. So. Yes. So uh good segue. So, so we, we can talk about that. That was another News thing that that came up this weekend, um, Ken Rosenthal reported that it seems likely that the home plate collisions rule and the transfer rule will both be changed, and not just that they would be changed, because I don't think that that was news to to anyone really, uh, but it does seem like they will be changed soon. Um, It wasn't at all certain that anything about the system would be changed before the end of the year. You kind of got the sense that while this was a trial run and while Major League Baseball was always upfront about it, you know, being subject to change, it wasn't certain that that they would tamper with things, meddle with things in season uh, because then, you know, it just it looks sort of bad. Why couldn't you work this out before the year? And then you've got to explain everything again to coaches and players who were explained something different this spring. But it does seem from what Rosenthal said that that there could be a change about both of these rules sooner rather than later, um, probably during the season is the sense I got. And it sounds like players are as mystified and, and upset about the transfer rule as as we are. You and I and Zachary talked about it on the podcast last week, and, and you called it before the spring, right? I mean, you in March were talking about how this would be a big problem. It's It's too bad that you were not on the committee that came up with the rules. Um, but it sounds like it sounds like they'll just be sort of going back to what what a catch is, what we thought a catch was, what a catch used to be. A catch will be a catch again. And we saw another example of the, the transfer rule this weekend with Kyle Seeger at third base sort of bobbling a ball on a transfer after having made a force play and, and the the call, you know, the runner was ruled out and then it was overturned. Um, so it sounds like pretty soon this will be gone. We'll be back to a catch being a catch. And this will just be sort of a historical footnote that we all kind of laugh about in five years. Do you have any? Yeah, uh, a, yeah go ahead. There was another one tonight, actually, uh, during the Red Sox game on uh, on uh, Sunday Night Baseball. Uh-huh. Um, I think it was Flaherty was, it, uh, was covering second. Uh, you know, I think it was a shift play, so I'm not exactly sure who was at second base. But he took the ball, I think, on the comebacker to the mound was was the throw from the pitcher, I think. And um, I remember the catch very clearly because it was clearly a catch. He, like, extends out, he catches the ball, his foot is on the back. And you can, like, see his glove squeeze, like, you can see the whole thing. 
and he brings down his glove to take the ball out of the glove because that's what you need to do in baseball is you need to actually take the ball out of your glove before you throw the ball, mm-hmm. and he drops it. Mm-hmm. And everybody knew at that point that the runner at second base was going to be safe. Mm-hmm. And they cut to Buck Showalter in the dugout, and he's just like, like, you could tell like what he was thinking is you're all idiots. <laughs> like, you know, like he didn't challenge the play because there's nothing to challenge. You know what I mean? Like, it's not really a challengeable play because there's, you know, there's no interpretation of he dropped the ball because you know gravity showed he dropped the ball. You right. know, like everybody can see the balls on the ground, but like everybody could also see it was a catch, mm-hmm. and there's really nothing worse than. And when everybody can see it's a catch and they can't do anything about it, so so it'll be changed. I mean, yes, it, it should be changed. Yes, and it's it's nice to know that this madness will will not last much longer because it's been kind of bad PR for what I would say overall is a a good system and a good development. Um, it's kind of been a black eye for replay in general that there has been this occasional strange play that really doesn't align with anyone's understanding of reality. So uh, hopefully this will be changed soon and we can go back to just enjoying the fact that fewer calls are incorrect now. Um, Yeah, the weird thing about this is is that this really doesn't have too much to do with replay in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? Like, had they just not emphasized this transfer thing? Yeah. Would anybody have ever gotten a transfer catch wrong on replay? You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. there would have been gray area ones where it would have been so clear, but most of these ones are just black and white. He caught the ball and then he dropped it. And, mm-hmm. you know, and we've made him uh, uh, you know, crap test out of it. So right. uh, we, we can just go back to being better people and, <laughs> <laughs> and have a good baseball again. Yes. Uh, I look forward to that. All right. Um, a couple other quick news items. Uh, I just wanted to talk about this um, Sean Doolittle extension briefly. Not not even so much to talk about Doolittle himself, but just to talk about the deal. The A's extended Doolittle for a or to a five-year contract extension. Um, so it runs covers the current season, runs through 2018, and this is kind of unusual um, for a a reliever to get that long a deal. A guy who hasn't been a closer, a guy with his service time. Uh, MLB Trade Rumors did a post, and and there were only three reliever extensions for four-year durations, and none that had gone to five. Um, You could count this as a four because one of the years is already in progress, but there are very few, if any, comparables to this kind of thing. And so I'm curious about the best interpretation of what this deal means, because I saw a few. There's the the idea that that relievers are somehow the new money ball, which has been bandied out a bit, bandied about a bit since uh, Billy Bean traded for Jim Johnson and spent all that money on a closer, which is weird. And we'd never seen Billy Bean do anything like that. And then he traded for Luke Gregerson, who's making decent money. And so this comes on the heels of that. And so you know, the idea is Billy Bean sees some sort of inefficiency with bullpens and relievers, and so now this is part of that. The other interpretation is, I suppose, that this is just an example of what Sam wrote about last year when he sort of speculated about which way extensions would be going and what teams could do to kind of push the envelope now that, 
now that everyone is signing extensions and it's not automatic that you just get a great deal on everyone, he was talking about what teams could do to get a great deal. And so one of his ideas was they could sign guys really young, sign them before they ever reach the majors, sort of like the, the contract that the Astros offered Springer. And his other idea was just sort of sign marginal players to extension. Like in the past, extensions have kind of been the domain of star players, or at least above average players, really valuable guys you want to lock up. And maybe now we're starting to see a, a lower or a lesser caliber of player get extended. So maybe that's part of it. Maybe now we're talking about reliever extensions. Um, and then the final interpretation is that maybe the A's figure that Sean Doolittle is their closer of the future, maybe their closer of the very near future. And if he's racking up saves over the next few years, he will be rewarded for that in arbitration. And therefore, it makes sense to to lock him up to a deal now before he has that closer aura about him. Um, sign him when he's still a setup man and then make him a closer and he'll still be paid like a setup man. So which of those interpretations is most persuasive to you? So, well, first, I just want to go back to ask you a question. So mm-hmm. when you say the new money ball, uh-huh. do you mean the new thing that Billy Bean is doing? Because Billy Bean is like the default, um, <laughs> you know, he's the guy in money ball. So <laughs> yes. or, or do you, well, I mean, like, you know, Brad Pitt off the standing. Uh, do, do you do you mean the thing Billy Bean is doing, or do you mean the things that makes good like baseball sabermetric sense? Uh, the thing that Billy Bean is doing because he thinks it makes the most sabermetric sense. Okay, so okay. I mean, you know, um, just the idea that Billy Bean is going after relievers all of a sudden, or paying relievers more than you know the standard sabermetric line about it doesn't make sense to pay relievers because they only pitch 60 innings and they aren't dependable and there there's always another one you could pick up that that whole thing that maybe maybe that was wrong the whole time maybe maybe the fact that all teams were paying relievers a lot more money than you know our our win value models would suggest that they should have was was them actually being on to something and and so now billy bean is on board with that but here's the thing if if Billy Bean, or, you know, like, if, if like, uh, I, I mean, I feel like Billy Bean is, like, both a real person and a fictional character. Mm-hmm. There's, like, an actual guy that exists, and then there's a guy that we talk about as if he, like, embodies all the sabermetric uh, general manager ideals. Mm-hmm. And so if the fictional Billy Bean, who embodies all sabermetric ideals, um, you know, thought that it made sense to try and acquire relievers cheaply, then why would he pay them? Right, yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, that's the part I don't understand. Like, if you can already go out and get relievers cheaply, you know, like, is Doolittle Knots going to be available? Like, you know, unless you are projecting Doolittle to be worth much more than the contract, which was some option somewhere in that litany of options that you gave me, mm-hmm. um, you know, nothing really helps make sense, Right. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, the A's have certainly been able to find cheap arms in the bullpen over the last couple of years. Uh, you know, do you like, think they're going to stop being able to find cheap arms? Like, well, yeah, I wonder. Up? I wonder because Sam again did an article last year where he 
he was actually responding to that idea because I think I on the podcast had had mentioned something about how the A's had just managed to find all these cheap, effective arms and Dan Otero and all of these people who kind of came out of nowhere to be really good setup guys. And so he was looking to see, I don't know, how repeatable that skill was. And he looked through all the, the A's successful bullpen guys. And his conclusion that was that it's not easy, that it's actually really hard to find these guys, that that lots of teams sign guys who could fit this mold or seem to come from this mold, but they don't turn out to be effective. And that the A's have, you know, just maybe, maybe they're really good at it. Maybe they just have great scouting, great statistical translations. They're able to, to find these guys better than all other teams are, or maybe it's just sort of a, a fluke, sort of a run of, of just hitting on all of these guys or, or a higher number than, than most teams did. So I don't know. And, and he, you know, he made the point that it wasn't, I mean, they put some time and effort into finding these guys and working them through the minors. And it wasn't just like, you know, reaching out and just snapping your fingers and coming up with a, a great setup, man. So maybe, yeah, maybe they have self-evaluated and said that we've gotten lucky here. We've had a really nice run of success finding these cheap available arms but we don't know that we can continue to do it. So maybe we should lock these guys up while we can. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, that is, that is certainly a possibility that maybe they've just gotten lucky. And so what they're doing now is they are, um, you know, hedging against the fact that their luck won't continue, that they've been good at scouting guys who have been, who have turned out in the recent past. The problem is, is it's, you know, if you think that, then what you're saying to yourself is, we know we don't know quite enough to go get guys, but we know that the guys we have are going to project to be really good. Mm-hmm. And that's a little bit weird, right? I mean, it's like saying, you know, um, we know that there's something about Sean Doolittle that's going to continue to be good in the future, um, and so we should pay him, even though there's probably plenty of other guys who are going to be underpaid next year who presumably you could apply the same sort of model to and decide, you know, we could pay them just a little bit more than they would otherwise be making, sign them comparatively cheaper than do little, and, you know, make off like bandits. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I guess it depends what you think about your, you know, player valuation model. Do you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, all right. And final final bit of news we can just talk about briefly, uh, the Ivan Nova injury seems like could could be the latest guy to be headed to the operating table with, with Tommy John. He's got a, a torn UCL and not sure of the severity and nothing has been announced for sure. Uh, he is on the disabled list and it doesn't sound great. And I just wanted to bring this up because you asked me a question on, I don't know, Thursday, Friday about the Yankees and and whether my evaluation of them had changed or my my projection for the team had changed just based on the early success of a couple of starters who we weren't sure what to expect uh, out of before the season started. Masahiro Tanaka, who has been great through a few starts, and Michael Pineda, who's also been great. And so I said that my evaluation or my expectation for Tanaka hadn't changed all that much. I expected good things out of him, and he's been great, but you know I wouldn't revise my 
my projection, my outlook for him all that much based on a few starts. But that Pineda, I didn't know whether he'd pitch at all or if he did pitch, whether he would come back close to with close to the stuff he had before, whereas he seems to have come back with all of the stuff he had before. And so that that seemed like, uh, you know, maybe you'd bump up their projection a couple wins relative to what you would have projected for them prior to the season, just just based on Pineda, even though he re- remains a, an elevated injury risk, certainly given his past. So now, uh, Nova. Right, so, so so somebody asked somebody asked last week, you know, with that whole like pine tar Pineda incident, uh-huh. if um, if there was anything different that Pineda was doing that right. he hadn't done the last couple of years. <laughs> and my answer was immediately, yeah, throw the ball. <laughs> you know, like like the ball was moving from the pitcher's mound to the glove, in, you know, in a way that it hadn't done in the last couple of years. <laughs> Yes. So, so yeah. So, so yeah. So that's that's, that's been a plus. <laughs> so, so now, um, so now, in the wake of the Pineda injury, or uh, sorry, the uh, the Nova injury, I guess they've have they kind of then given back the couple of wins that maybe we would have given them over over you know their their March thirty first projection, just based on the fact that they're now. Going from Nova to, you know, Fidel Nuno started in his place today. They're obviously not a team with with a wealth of sixth and seventh and eighth starters. So that's kind of a big blow. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I was expecting good things out of Nova. He was sort of on my, I don't know, I don't really have a breakout player list, but if I had made one, he probably would have been on one just based on the improvements he made during the season in, in 2013 and how effective he was down the stretch, I was, I was expecting good things. And, uh, now it looks like they will not be getting those good things. So, um, so that's, that probably wipes out the, the, the good that they get from Pineda actually pitching. Uh, yeah. Although, you know, Pineda could be a, you know, I mean, if Pineda comes back and he's really good, which is, you know, every indication, maybe he's going to be, um, at least, you know, if he keeps throwing things, um, you know, that could be a top of the rotation kind of arm, whereas I don't think Nova was ever going to be a top of the rotation kind of arm. So mm-hmm. I think there's way more upside for Pineda if he's healthy than there ever would be for Nova. Of course, there's there wasn't huge injury risk risk for Nova until he right. you know, until his elbow blew out. There's huge injury risk for Pineda. I think you know. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think you have to, you know, every day that Pineda gets on a mound and gets off it without. Um, experiencing some sort of like, um, like uh, spontaneous arm amputation, <laughs> you know, uh, you you have to think it's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to decide whether the Yankees have been more or less healthy than I would have expected for them so far. They've had they've had the Teixeira injury, uh, and he's back now, yeah. and they've had the Robertson groin strain, and he's just about to be back now. Um, and of course, they've had Brendan Ryan hurt and Francisco Cervelli hurt, and now they've got Roberts, Nova hurt. Brian Roberts hurt. Uh, is Brian Roberts? I mean, I sort of assumed that Brian Roberts is hurt, but he's been playing. Um, no, no, no. Didn't he? Did he? Wasn't he hurt? I thought. I thought he didn't play at all. This. I thought he played like two games. Uh, let me let me see while we talk. Am I crazy? I thought he. I thought he like threw out his groin or something or his some part Robert, of him. Robert Sin did. Um, no, 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 Roberts. Okay, he's played. 
Yeah, Robert's. Yeah, he's he's got low lower back soreness, uh, but okay. just just the last few days, day to day, and okay. I'm sure that won't escalate into anything worse than that. Um, no. <laughs> and and Jeter's had a you know day to day thing here and there, but I guess you kind of have to after last season and given the the collective age of this team. Maybe this is maybe this is a more healthy April than you could have expected. One pitcher potentially lost for the season, and a few guys on the 15 day with DL, and a few guys day to day. Guess it could be worse. <laughs> That's uh, that was uh, kind of the the risk. What about A Rod? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, um, eh. I'm, a, I'm a Red Sox fan, so I just felt <laughs> necessary to bring up A Rod. I mean, like there is no reason he belongs in this conversation. But all right, there you go. Okay, we can move on. All right. Okay, so we've already talked for a while, so that's enough news and current events. Well, let's talk about other current events that uh, are not strictly performance-related. This really was the weekend of of unwritten rules, um, and we, Jason or uh, Russell and I, spoke to Dirk Kayhurst last week about unwritten rules and how they can be confusing for for off-the-field observers and seemingly also for for on-the-field participants. And so there were there were a few this weekend, so we can just go through them quickly here and give give whatever our thoughts are. So I guess the first one uh, was involved the A's and the Astros. The A's knocked Jared Kosart out of the game uh, very very early. They scored seven runs in the first inning of what turned into an 11-3 win over the Astros. And that first inning only ended because Jed Lowry, who was batting for the second time in the inning, went for a bunt single and was thrown out at first. And uh, so the the bunt single actually worked in the Astros' favor in that Lowry was out, uh, but it was not it was not well received by the Astros. And the next time Lowry was up, Paul Clemens, who was pitching for the Astros, threw. Between uh, Lowry's legs, he was aiming to, to hit him, presumably, somewhere in the lower body. And then the second pitch was inside also. And then Lowry flew out, and he had some words with Jose Altuve. And, you know, the, the standard uh, whether, the, whether the, the mercy rule, in effect, in a sense, was, was in effect after scoring seven runs in the first inning. And, and I was watching MLB Tonight on MLB Network that night, and they had Harold Reynolds in the studio and Mitch Williams in the studio, and they were split on this one. And Harold Reynolds was was very much opposed to this action by Lowry. Just, you know, bunting with a seven-run lead was just uh, was unforgivable. Mitch Williams said it was totally okay because it was the first inning. And his understanding of, of rules like this is that it has to be, you know, after the sixth inning or double-digit, deficit, which is kind of the, the problem with all these things is that, you know, they were contemporaries in baseball. They played the same game and they completely disagreed on this play. And uh, so certainly we not having played will disagree with people who have played and disagreed with each other. I don't know. Do you come down either way on this one? I mean, I, it sort of boggles my mind really that given how big a, a business baseball is and just how how important, how valuable every win is to every team, not to mention, you know, every single is to the players who figure to make a ton of money. 
it, it really kind of boggles my mind that we are still talking about any sort of mercy rule in baseball. And, uh, you know, I guess I am okay with it, given that it was the first inning. And it was also the Astros, and you figure they're probably not going to come back from a seven-run deficit. But so early in the game, um, as Mitch Williams said, you know, if you don't like it, don't give up seven runs in the first inning. No, I mean, look, uh, I actually, I, I think Lowry's comments really summed us up best. When Lowry was asked about it, I think he said, you know, look, they were shifting me, right, in yeah. the first inning, down seven runs. Mm-hmm. And if the game was so out of hand that they, you know, they expect that I shouldn't be trying to bunt for a single, mm-hmm. then why are they deploying weird defenses against me? <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like, like if, you know, if you think that, you know, it's if the uh, if you're complaining that, for example, like, you know, this happens in football every once in a while. It's like, you know, a team is down, you know, 35 uh, or something like that. And, um, and you know, the, the other team will still be throwing deep against them. And it's like, well, why are you doing that? And it's like, well, why are you blitzing? You know what I mean? Like, what, 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 what do you possibly hope to accomplish? You know, it's like, what, why do you feel like you get to play the game to best, uh, you know, contribute to your chance of winning, but I don't get to do the same thing? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's dumb. Mm-hmm. Um you know, so, I, well, I, I tend to think that most unwritten rules things are dumb. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, really, you know, if you're going to shift people and expect that people can bump against the shift, and this, it wasn't even successful, right? I mean, like, right. you know, it, it, it's not like it's not like they did something that was like, um, I don't know, you know, like if they were up, you know, uh, 14 to 2, in the ninth inning, and they put in Billy Hamilton to run it. I know they don't have that guy, but if they mm-hmm. put him in to run at first base and he stole second, mm-hmm. you know, then it would be like, all right, now you're just being dicks. Mm-hmm. But this is a case where, you know, the Astros are choosing to shift, which we all recognize as a unique defense designed to prevent Jed Lowry from hitting the ball or getting a hit when he hits the ball to where he normally hits it. So clearly it's in his best interest to not do that. I mean, you know, I, I I can't even really wrap my mind around why anyone would be upset at him for doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that is a good point. And I guess you could say that the Astros are shifting so much now that for them to to not shift in a shift situation would, you know, potentially screw them up somehow. Like, I, you know, they're in this mindset all season where they're shifting in certain situations and then to abandon it one time would be a lot of effort for them to have to readjust their approach to the game or something. But, but yeah, I mean, that seems like a, a pretty airtight argument to me. Um, yeah. And uh, I would also, I would find it more insulting if I was the Astros, if the A's just decided to give up, right? Like mm-hmm. Jed Lowry could have easily have just sat down in the batter's box, <laughs> right. you know, and been like, all right, well, strike me out. You know, how's that working? Mm-hmm. And they could have struck him out, and he could have walked back and sat down in the dugout. But mm-hmm. like, obviously, that wouldn't have been satisfying to anyone. So he's trying to play to win. Like, mm-hmm. you know, get over it. People play the game to win. So. Yeah. Uh, second unwritten rule violation came on Saturday when Bryce Harper was pulled from the Nationals game by manager Matt Williams, 
for not hustling. Uh, he was pulled after six innings because he didn't run out a ground ball. And he really, really didn't run it out. I mean, it wasn't one of those cases where you jog all the way to the base. He didn't even reach the base. He sort of got three quarters of the way there and, and peeled out back to the dugout. And so he was removed from the game. And uh, to intensify the, the attention paid to this, as if there wasn't going to be enough already, Harper's spot came up in the bottom of the ninth inning with Trevor Rosenthal on the mound, and the Nationals used Kevin Franson with the the tying runs on second and third base. And Franson drove in one of those runs with a ground out, but of course the question was, what would have happened had Harper been in the game? And and the Nationals, I think, lost that game by a run. So, uh, So the question was, you know, did Williams handle this well and... I guess it's kind of the the standard thing when a a new manager comes in and you know he wants to establish his authority on the team and and establish the fact that no player on the team is is above the law and can get away with things that other players on the teams couldn't and presumably he was brought in kind of you know playing on his reputation as a guy who played the game the right way or you know, coming in to take over a team that underperformed last year. And so maybe he sold ownership on, you know, being harder on the players, getting more out of the talent. And so this was clearly a case where, you know, it's not like Harper really cost the team anything in in 99 out of 100 situations, but you never know. It was kind of an egregious example of not running it out. My question really is, you know, is this the best way to handle it? Do you want to do it in such a such a high-profile way uh, with a player who is so important to the franchise? And of course, you know, you look back through baseball history and all kinds of Hall of Fame players have been benched at some point in their career. This is probably not going to be a lasting issue in any way. Uh, it's unlikely that Harper is just going to be seething and the resentment will build year after year and and he'll demand a trade or he won't resign with the Nationals because of this incident or because of other incidents that snowball from this incident. Most likely it's just over and it's a blip and we won't ever talk about it again. But, you know, you would think that at least the way that I would handle it and Matt Williams is, you know, paid to to handle things better than I would and to to know what makes Bryce Harper tick better than I would. Um, But, you know, why not pull him aside and say, don't do that again, <laughs> you know, rather than rather than put the spotlight on him, sort of embarrass him. You know, if you think he's a player that could learn a lesson just from being told as opposed to being made an example of, then why not try it that way? And of course, I'm, I'm assuming that this is not a pattern that Williams hasn't, you know, talked to Harper about it before. And so Harper was then disobeying an order, in which case that would change things. But Otherwise, you'd think, you know, why not go about it in a, a a way that puts a little less attention on Harper and also doesn't cost the Nationals in the short term a potential victory. Yeah, so actually, I I mean, really, I mean, it's all sort of like self-flagellation, like who cares, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like it's not like they hit a guy with a, a pitch or something because like he decided not to hustle. You know, they removed their own player from the game that mm-hmm. presumably gave them a smaller chance to win. So if they want to do that, whatever. Um, the best thing about this story is not the fact that it happened. 
but the fact it happened to Bryce Harper, who actually was on the cover of Inside Pitch, which is the Nationals program. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I just sent it to you. I don't know if you've seen this see before. It, yes. mm-hmm. um, yeah, so he's on the cover, and it's a picture of him, like, running with this, like, wild eye, like, like look in his face, and it says nothing but hustle. And it's just <laughs> amazing that he would be benched in that very game mm-hmm. for lack of hustle. Um you know, this is also a guy who plays with such reckless abandon that he runs into walls at full speed. You right. Know? Um, I mean, this is a guy who uh, probably six months ago or a year ago or however long it was ago, you were talking about, like, does he need to slow down so yes. that he doesn't hurt himself or something like that? Mm-hmm. And, you know, so it's kind of like if you benched Puig for... Um, uh, you know, taking a wide turn at first rather than hustling to second on a double. Mm-hmm. And it's like all the media attention is about how he, he he's not, he's a good base runner actually, but all the media attention is how he's an idiot on the bases and costs his team runs. Mm-hmm. And all the media attention on Harper is like, you know, dude, slow down, don't hurt yourself. You right. have a long career, you know, don't run into walls. You know, there's going to be times where you aggravate a leg injury or whatever. You don't need to bust it down the first baseline, you know, on routine grounders or whatever. You know, you can run, but you don't need to kill yourself because you're, you know, you're a special kind of player. And um, it's just amazing that they would they, they would bench him for mm-hmm. not running hard enough. That seems incredibly short-sighted, but who knows? I mean, you know, they know him better than I do. Right. Yeah, that's that was more or less my feeling. And then the last unwritten rule uh, flare-up of the weekend came courtesy of Carlos Gomez, who has given us such such controversies to discuss before. And this one started in a game where he uh, he's playing against the Pirates. He flipped his bat on what turned out to be a triple. Uh, it looked like it was a home run off the bat. He He appeared to think it was. And he ended up at third after the ball bounced back and got got by Andrew McCutcheon. So it didn't didn't cost the Brewers anything. He ended up on third. Uh, but once he got to third, Garrett Cole, who was pitching for the Pirates, started saying something to him. And then Gomez started responding. And then he sort of threw some punches, which were not really just punches, but punches while he was still holding his batting helmet, which is, you know, kind of kind of dirty in a way. Um, and so his... I don't know. He wasn't using a bat, you know. He wasn't using a bat. No, we can give him that. Um, so so after the game, uh, Gomez defended himself, and he said, um, he said that he was not flipping his bat because he thought it was a home run. He said he was flipping his bat because he thought it was an out. Uh, he said, I thought it was a fly ball out, line drive center field, and I'm kind of like, oh, I had good contact, but I don't think it's going out. It's not like I'm pimping a home run, um, which is a little dubious, I think, probably. But he did make a good point that, uh, you know, he had done this stuff before. Like, he homered against the Pirates on Friday night, and he flipped his bat. Uh, he flipped his bat on a sacrifice fly against the Pirates recently. So I don't know whether the resentment was building up or whether the pitcher who was pitching when those balls were hit just didn't didn't mind what Garrett Cole minded. Um, so he says, I do the stuff I've been doing for eight years. 
Why do people get mad and pissed off for something I do every time? And when they when they do it, nobody gets mad, nobody gets pissed off. I don't understand. Uh, and he gave a couple examples during the same series of pirates who were pimping hits, according to him. And the Brewers didn't didn't say anything. Uh, he said, "We respect that. You win. Okay, enjoy it. We hit a double. We hit a triple. They get mad. I don't think it's fair." Um, so maybe kind of an unusual situation in which a a young player who made the league last year is is yelling at a veteran about unwritten rules, which is maybe the opposite of the way it usually works. But um, I think Tom Tango raised an interesting question after this game when he he asked whether uh, whether the NFL rules about showboating that prevent showboating are smart and whether baseball should do that. Because as it is right now, players more or less police other players. And I know that, you know, when Sam and I talk about these things, we usually say that it's the player's game and however they want to play it is fine with us. Uh, but Tom made the point that, you know, maybe why not empower the, the umpire and the league to do it? And of course, in a way, you know, Gomez will be suspended. Other people who participated here will be suspended and fined, but not for the unwritten rule violation, but for the brawl that ensued after that. Uh, so, you know, the, the rules that the NFL has about celebrating after a touchdown or after a sack or whatever it is and demonstrating, you know, right in front of the player who you just beat, which is pretty much equivalent to pimping a home run and flipping your bat right in front of the pitcher who allowed it, why not then give the league or the umpire the power to to impose the fine or to take the player out of the game and just take it out of the player's hands entirely, which possibly could do away with these sorts of brawls that we see from time to time. So... So the NFL actually has really specific rules about what's allowed and what's not allowed. Uh-huh. Um, so, for example, you can do sack dances, you can do touchdown dances, you can, you know, do first down dances. You see that every once in a while. Um, you know, if you make an interception, you can do a dance after that. Whatever. Um, you can't make um, like aggressive gestures, so you can't like slit your throat. You can't, um, you know, like grab your crotch. You can't, you know, you, you can't uh, use the ball as a prop. You can't do like a coordinated thing with a whole bunch of people. You, you know, like so there's a whole bunch of things. Um, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, watching your home run would be outlawed in the NFL is silly. I mean, uh-huh. You know, people do way worse than that. You know, like after you sack the quarterback in the NFL, you get up and then like you dance over his corpse. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> right. like it's like you know, like like come on, like like if a baseball player did that, you know, like you know, he would he would get beaten by everyone on the other team for the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and that's actually the funniest part about this whole thing to me, at least. So, Crook on baseball Sunday Night Baseball was they were replaying this and he was saying, you know, Garrett Cole just needs to learn that when somebody does this to you, the next time he gets back in the box, you just drill him. And it's like Garrett Cole throws a hundred miles an hour. Like, I don't see how it's any better for Garrett Cole to get back in the, you know, to, to have, you know, him get back in the box and then 
you know, drill him off the ribs or whatever with a 100-mile-an-hour fastball than mm-hmm. it is for him to yell at him like, mm-hmm. while he goes around the bases. Like, that seems a whole lot less provocative to me, but I'm not a baseball player, so I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it seems like a whole lot less possibly uh, likely to cause injury, you know, all sorts of things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, who knows? I mean, I, I, I think I think that, that policing these things... It's, pretty well done by the players. You know, there were actual punches thrown in this fight, which is mm-hmm. really rare. Yes. Um, you know, most most brawls are like the lamest things. Most baseball brawls are like, you know, I, I love, actually, my favorite part of the baseball brawl is when the uh, bullpen's clear. Yes. You know, because like, <laughs> by the time everything has happened, you know, it's like the bullpen sort of look at each other and they're like, you know, the Many times they actually come from exactly the same place. So clearly if they <laughs> yeah. wanted to fight people on the other team, they could just turn three feet and fight the guys who are also coming out of the bullpen. Mm-hmm. But they don't do that. They like all run, jog, toy, and field. Yeah. And they sort of mill around and talk to each other. Wow. Yeah, I wish we you got I, I wish we got bullpen on bullpen brawling just in a different setting, just multiple multiple locales. Well, you know, like, I think that would, you know, I think that would really up the ante here. No, but seriously, I mean, um, you know, baseball balls tend to be pretty dumb. Um, You know, rarely do actual punches get thrown, rarely do actual people get, you know, anything that could possibly hurt them. You know, they're a lot more tame than hockey brawls, but they're sort of there to deal, do the same thing, right? Like, they're a pressure release valve, you know guys yell at each other, they come out on the field, then they get thrown out of the game, and then the game continues. You know, if you listen to uh, the guys talking about hockey fights, um, they're more or less totally staged. Like, they're not staged. Like, the guys are throwing punches at each other. It's not like WWE. But they actually, they're like, hey, you want to fight? And the other guy's like, yeah, let's fight. Mm-hmm. And then they drop the space. And they're like, you know, it's, it's not like one guy, like, jumps the other guy and, like, he starts throwing punches out, out of nowhere. You know, like, they talk to each other and they're like, hey, we need to fight now. You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, you know, these are guys who more or less, they fight all the time. And they're like, okay, let's, 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 let's start fighting. And, um, you know, baseball brawls are sort of the same thing. You know, it's like there's a little bit of like, you know, some tensions blowing up and then somebody throws a pitch that's usually nowhere near somebody else and they get upset about it and then they charge the mound and they yell at each other and then everybody gets thrown out of the game and then it moves on. Mm-hmm. You know, and I mean, I, I don't know. So anyway, I, I think the idea of like, getting umpires involved here any more than they are already would be awful. I mean, can you imagine like, um, you know, a, a guy hits like, a big double in a key spot in the ninth inning or whatever to put the go-ahead run on third base. And, you know, he gets up there and he, like, does a fist pump. And, you know, they, they all, when they get to second base, they, like, gesture at their teammates. And they're like, oh, yeah. And the umpire being like, red card, you're out of here. Right. But, you know. And then we have, uh, to have, you know, have to have replay review to determine whether he fist pumped. So, Tell yeah. me now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, you know, I mean, like, look, you know, the game polices itself pretty well. I mean, you know, if this was really a problem, then players would say this was really a problem. And nobody is really getting hurt in baseball brawls. I mean, like, it, it happens, but it's super rare. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it, it happened It happened last year, right? Zach Greinke got hurt, didn't he? 
Yeah, that was yeah. I mean, that was more a, a one-on-one confrontation than a, a brawl. I guess it turned into a brawl. Um, and you know, there's the the Jason Larue, Johnny Cueto one. But but yes, it's it's not not common. Yeah, it's just one of. The, I mean, like it's just one of those things. That, I don't know. I mean, I I tend to think like I think the, the more embarrassing thing about all these unwritten rules things is that Jed Lowry didn't get hit with a pitch. You know, I think I think that if you're gonna, I think if you know, I think if you're gonna go up there, like didn't Ryan Dempster do this last year with a Rod, right? Where he was like, I'm gonna hit you, and he threw a ball behind him, and it didn't hit him, and then he threw another ball behind him, and it didn't mm-hmm. hit him. They are all looked at him like, dude, he's gonna hit me or not? And then he got drilled, right? I mean, like, a good example you know. of something that Sam likes to talk about, and we've talked about it on the podcast before that that pitchers control is probably not quite as good as we tend to think it is. And, and we looked up a stat about, uh, you know, when the pitcher is facing an opposing pitcher at the plate and he goes to 3-0. Uh, and, and, of course, the sample is sort of skewed because the, the p- pitchers who are going to 3-0 on opposing pitchers are probably guys who, who don't have good control to begin with. But it's like only 67% strikes in that situation on 3-0 to a pitcher, which is the most, you know, gimme strike situation in the world. No pitcher is going to swing at a, a 3-0 pitch probably. So you can just lay it right over the middle. And even in that situation, they can only do it two-thirds of the time. So it's not not shocking to me that, that they miss players' bodies when they are aiming for those also at times. What but, about Bartolo Colon? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you got to pitch around that guy if he's in the plate. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I where where Carlos Gomez is concerned, at least I, I feel like maybe he should just sort of get a special dispensation from the unwritten rules because it's it's clear that this is how he plays the game and he's not apologetic about it and yelling at him is not going to stop him from from doing this and and you know Carlos Gomez is from his perspective he doesn't feel that he's doing anything wrong so if he wants to continue doing this that's fine but he should probably just not respond to people yelling at him. And then these things won't escalate and he can keep flipping the bat if he wants to. Especially no, well, if, like if this was really a problem, people would say, if you flip the bat against our team, you're going to get drilled in the ribs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, no matter how much Carlos Gomez likes flipping the bat, it's going to get old for him to get hit with the ball, Probably. you know? And, <laughs> and, you know, this will solve itself. You know, we, we just don't need more... We don't need rules about when, you know, if he hits the ball a long distance, he can admire himself hitting the ball. Mm-hmm. You know, like, that, we just don't need rules about that. We need mm-hmm. fewer rules, not more rules. <laughs> I agree. And the idea that, that it would have been more acceptable if the ball had actually gone out, whereas because it didn't go out, it was somehow more of an affront seemed curious to me. I mean... The fact that he misjudged the fly ball slightly, I don't, I don't know why that has any bearing on whether whether the flipping itself was was out of bounds or not. But, but that's just one of many corollaries to the unwritten rules that are sort of hard to parse. Well, the, the only thing about it is, is that if it had gone out, he would have just been off the bases. So Garrett Cole wouldn't have been able to turn, over, turn around and yell at him. Yeah, well, you know what I mean? Like, I I don't think it necessarily would have been any better. It just, you wouldn't have been there. Brian McCann might have appeared and prevented him from scoring. Oh, God. What (laughs) stupidity. 
All right. Well, that's enough for today. One one final note, because it actually is sort of unwritten rule related. A long time ago, Sam and I talked about whether it would be against the unwritten rules for an outfielder to fake a catch on a home run if the play were not reviewable for some reason or if, if the replay weren't conclusive and an outfielder pretended to you know, catch a, a ball that ended the game and pretended to go up over the fence and bring it back and didn't actually have it in his glove but sort of brandished his glove at the umpire as if he did and got the out, we wondered whether that would be against the unwritten rules to deceive the umpire and deceive the other team and win because of it. And uh, maybe we got a little confirmation of it. We got a, a listener email from Thomas who writes, During the Yankees-Rays game on Sunday, Brett Gardner hit a ball to the wall that looked like a possible home run. Live, it appeared that Will Myers made the catch. But on replay, it was shown that the ball actually hit the wall and then fell into Will Myers' glove. As soon as Myers realized he had the ball in his glove, he started trotting in with the ball held up as if he had made the catch. It's not quite on the level of a true fake play where the player doesn't even have the ball. But afterwards, the broadcast showed Myers and the other outfielders laughing and joking about how he almost pulled it off. So he clearly knew he was trying to sell a non-catch and not legitimately thinking that he counted as a catch. And so Thomas wanted to let us know because we had talked about that. And so now we have some clarity on, on that. No one, no one yelled at Will Myers. No one drilled Will Myers in the ribs next time he was up. So if you want to fake a catch, that much is okay. So well, that, now we know why the Royals traded him. <laughs> right. Doesn't he just doesn't right play way. the game the right way. Yeah, exactly. All right. That is all the unwritten rules violations that occurred this weekend, I think. So thank you for, for joining me, Dan, and discussing those. No problem. And Anytime people, to Sabre Seminar. <laughs> okay. And people, yes, well, everyone should go to Sabre Seminar. Are tickets still available? Indeed. All right. They're going uh, quickly, though. So, uh, so where, where should people buy them? SaberSeminar.com, and all tickets are donations to the Jimmy Fund, and uh, you'll have a great time. I, well, I can't promise that, but um, it's very likely. you'll have a great time. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you can follow Dan on Twitter at Brooks Baseball. You should be using BrooksBaseball.net because it is a, a great resource for people who want to know what's happening in baseball. And uh, please support our sponsor, Baseball Reference. Go to BaseballReference.com. Subscribe to the Play Index using the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30. And that's all for today. Please send us emails at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. We will get to those later this week.